Well, today we start a new series called Priceless. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I hear that word, I I always think of one thing. What do you think of when you hear that word priceless? MasterCard. Yeah, MasterCard. MasterCard. That's what I think of, MasterCard. Look at one of these uh, latest MasterCards. Backpack. $20. Being with people who understand you. Priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For discount stores, there's MasterCard. (laughs) I love that. I hadn't seen that one yet. That that is priceless. But what we're talking about are the enduring commitments of a Christ follower. That's what's priceless, our values. You know, the values are the things that we hope just mark each one of us here at Door Creek who love Christ with all of our hearts. We, We hope it's the DNA of this place. We, we hope it's the aroma of this place, that, that people come here and they, they get it because that's just what it's like around here. That we, um, we just pray that these kinds of things will be the heart and soul of who we are as a people of God in this place. So these are commitments that are rooted in God's word. And they're the stuff that we believe with all, all of our heart that help us get after our mission. Cal mentioned it this morning, changing lives to change the world. And I'm convinced that there is no way that we're going to change people into devoted followers of Christ who change the world with his love unless you and I live these things out, these commitments, these priceless, enduring commitments out in our lives. So that's what we're going to be embarking on. Now, maybe you've seen the beautiful tree, the artwork of the tree that symbolizes these seven commitments it's right out in the atrium and you you need to look at that it's beautiful lisa ray put that together for us but when we think about what we're committed to we do think first of all it's a life of worship worshiping god in all of life we think about the bible's authority centering our lives on god's truth what are we committed to the richness of community growing together in christ We think of a joyful witness, not just a witness, but a joyful one where we're sharing and living out the good news. We're committed to compassionate service, humbly extending his compassion to those in need. We're committed to intentional training, preparing and releasing God's people for service. And we're committed to persistent prayer, devoting ourselves to pray continually. So in the next seven weeks, we're going to be digging down into these values and hopefully understand again why they're so priceless, why they're so important, and why these are the very things that need to be part and parcel of my life and our life together as we seek to change lives, to change the world. So get your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to um, use these two verses, verses 1 and 2, to help us get a handle on what's going on here as we talk about a life of worship. Here's what Paul wrote to his friends in Rome, written to them, but written for us as well. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
And before we start getting into this whole concept of a life of worship, let's just talk about the word worship. Our English word comes from the old English word, worthship, W-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-P, worthship. Webster says it's reverent honor and homage paid to God or to a sacred personage or to any object regarded as sacred or holy. It's adoring reverence. That's what Webster says about worship. Here's what John Piper writes. Uh, A pastor in our day, a theologian, written a great book called Desiring God. He says this about worship. Worship is gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. It's what we were singing about earlier when we talked about resonate. Resonating with his honor and glory and echoing back his praise back to him. Gladly reflecting back to God the radiance, the splendor of his glory, of his worth. In the Old Testament, when we come across this word, it it means to bow down. And so people are bowing down to people that have um, a, a prominent place, maybe a king or a person or to an angel or to God himself. In the New Testament, the main word used to translate worship means to to fall down and kiss somebody's feet or to kiss the ground. And In fact, we still use that phrase today, I could kiss your feet, when we're so grateful for something they've done for us. Now, when you think about it in its simplest form, here's what I'd like you to remember about worship. What is worship? Worship is obeying God's clear command in the Psalms. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Worship, then, is delighting in God. And when we find him to be our all-sufficient, all-satisfying source of joy, we give him great honor and glory. It's another way of thinking about the great commandment that we have in the scriptures to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are the things of worship. That's what worship is. Delighting in God. Loving him with all that we have and all that we are. And so we understand then that worship is not something we have to do, but it's something we get to do. It's not about duty. It's actually about privilege, about delight and delighting in him. And yet it's something that those back in Rome needed to be reminded of. And I'm so glad that there are other people like his friends in Rome that needed a word of encouragement to remind them that, hey, this is how you're supposed to live your life. You're supposed to live your life delighting in God worshiping him because I find so often in my life it's easy to go through life where I've lost sight of him and so I too need that reminder we remember the scriptures say that you and I were created to worship Isaiah 43 verse 7 says that we were created for God's glory and to live for his glory and in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 he says Paul says the followers of Christ are to live their lives in such a way that they live for the praise of his glory Ephesians 1, verse 12. So as we think about this, then here's what we want to do is say, okay, so what does that look like? A life of worship. And what we know here from the text, and we can't say everything there is in today's message on this subject because there's so much. But using these two verses, here's what we can say. 
The first of two things is that a life of worship begins with a clear vision of God. It begins right there with a clear vision of God. And specifically, we note in the very beginning of verse 1, what does it say? In view, what are we looking at? What are we seeing? What's in our view? God's mercies. And it's literally there, plural, in the original. Specifically, his mercies are in view. What are his mercies? His mercies are that we don't get what we deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve that God just leaves us alone and starts over with someone else. But what we have are the mercies of God. In chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, talking all about God's mercies. You think of a verse like in chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's his mercies. And he says, we need to get our eyes on God and specifically on his mercies that are ours every day, new in him and fully in his son. The mercy of forgiveness and new life. And so, two things are true. If we need a clear vision of God, then there is no vision of God without God revealing himself to us, without revelation. God is spirit. We, we, we can't understand who he is and what he's like unless he discloses himself to us. And that's what he's done. The Bible says he's done it in creation, Romans chapter 1, so that None of us are without excuse can say, well, I didn't know there was a God. Romans 1 says, yeah, you did. The very creation around us shouts to the fact and displays his invisible attributes, the fact that he's a mighty God. He's revealed himself in the Bible, in Scripture. He's revealed himself perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ, who John calls the Word of God. Why is he called the Word? Because he perfectly communicates what God is like to us. So there is no vision of God without revelation, and we have a God who's done that. From the very beginning, he's talking. And we're learning about him as we see his acts in creation and his acts in calling a people to himself like Abraham and all those after him. We learn all about this God as we read the record of his dealings with the world that he's created. But here's a second truth about vision. There's no seeing God, even in his word, even in the glories of creation, even in the face of Christ, unless he opens our eyes. And that explains why some people don't get it. Because the scriptures tell us this about spiritual blindness. Look up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age, speaking now of our adversary, the devil. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. What is that light? It's the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hebrews 1 says he's the exact representation of God. For we do not preach ourselves, Paul says in verse 5, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So a life of worship demands that we see him clearly and specifically the goodness of God, his mercies, but all that he is and all that he's revealed. 
And when we see him, Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, we will worship him. That's what we'll do instinctively. Now, I want you to think about things in life that we see or experience, things of beauty, things of great performance, and what happens in those times. Let let me have you just look at a few shots here. Now, did you, did you hear what just happened? What, what, what just happened when we saw the little baby? Oh, right. Did I have to cue you? Did you nudge each other, do that? It, it just came, didn't it? When, when you're at Miller Park, and it's the bottom of the ninth, and Fielder hits a walk-off grand slam, does anybody need to tell you, this would be a good time to stand up and high-five your neighbors around you? <laughs> when you hear Pavarotti, who just passed away this this last week. When you hear someone like that and, and experience a great performance, how does it go? It's, it's spontaneous. It's from the heart. And, and that's why there's standing ovations. And that's why there's the talk of praise of something or someone. And that's why we grab for our camera when we see that amazing sunset. We say, got to capture that. See, we see it. We get it, and it's instinctive we respond. And Paul says, I've been giving you his mercies. I've been giving you his mercies. Now, let the instinctive response be worship. Worship. And that's what happens. That's what happens throughout the scriptures. If we see people who actually see God, every time we see them, Boom, they're flat on their face before him. Sometimes they get God mixed up with an angel because they've never seen God before. So it's easy to understand, right? Looks like nothing I've ever seen before. It must be God. Boom, they're on their face and the angel says, hey, I'm not, I'm not God. Get up. Never in the scriptures do we read an angel tapping a saint on the so- shoulder who's just seen God and say, you know what, now would be a good time. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. They see God, and boom. What do the scriptures say? At the name of Christ, when he comes back, what's going to happen? Every knee, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So when you think about, we need a clear vision, then we, we better know, how to pray. Lord, open the eyes of my heart. That's what Paul prayed. Remember in Ephesians 1.18? I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know him. He says, I, I want to know him. The writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, Hebrews chapter 12. Well, we've got to pray, God, open my eyes. Open my eyes to your majesty and your splendor in your world so I don't miss it. So when I go on a beautiful walk in the countryside this morning, I see the sunset, I make the connection. This is you, God. This is just little fingerprints of your majesty. Lord, open my eyes to the world that I'm in to to know that you're here with me. Open my eyes to how you've revealed yourself in your word so I don't just go through your word this week on my own or in my small group or whatever it is and somehow it's become an academic exercise in my mind. It's never affected my heart and, and I never saw you. Open the eyes. 
my eyes, our eyes. So that's the first thing Romans 12 tells us about worship. Here's the second thing it tells us, that a life of worship is then the logical response to seeing God for who he is. And and I get that word logical from the end of verse 1. Look at the end of verse 1. When it says, this is your spiritual act of worship. That word spiritual has a footnote in the NIV that says reasonable. It's the reasonable thing to do. In the original language, it's the same word that we get the word logical from. It's the logical thing to do. That when you see God for who he is, you respond appropriately in worship. Seeing God leads to worshiping him. And that's the logical response in our text. Offering our bodies, all that we are, back to him. I had a prof, Warren Wiersbe, in seminary, who, who said, this, this was a key verse for him. He said, what I would do with Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, that this would be kind of my, my daily routine in the morning. I'd get up and say, Lord, I just want to offer myself to you. And I give you my feet. And wherever I go, Lord, I, I want it to be honoring to you. I, I want to walk in your ways and in step with you, mindful that you're with me. Lord, I give you my hands. I give you all the things that I'll do with my hands. I, I want to honor you. All the things that you've given me that I hold with my hands, I don't want to clutch them. I want to be a giver, not a grabber. Lord, I give you my heart with the affections of my heart. I give you the intentions of my heart. I give you my ears, all that I'll hear today and open my ears to my eyes and all that I'll look at, my mouth and all that I'll say. I give you my mind, all that I think about, the attitudes, it's all yours. And, and the key thing here is, he, is the text says, offer, offer your bodies. Because this is something that God says is your free choice in mind. The truth is we all are worshipers. Every one of us here worships something or someone. Everyone that you'll meet Everyone who is living today is worshiping. That's how God made us, to worship. And he calls us to worship him freely, willingly, offering ourselves to him. He's not going to twist our arms. He's going to let you worship whatever it is you want to worship, but in the end, he's a jealous God who knows that he alone is to be worshiped and so he'll never let you be satisfied with the other gods. He'll never let you be satisfied with them. So we offer ourselves willingly to him. And I don't know if you caught it, but there's a complete oxymoron here when he says a living sacrifice because sacrifices are what? Yeah, they're dead. And he calls this a living sacrifice. Now, so I was thinking of oxymorons, and so I put together my top 10 list. So have a crack at it with me. Top 10 lists, all right? Number, number 10, alone together. All right, they get better. Same difference. Number eight, taped live. Seven, plastic glasses. Tight slacks. Peace force. Number four, pretty ugly. Number three, jumbo shrimp. I love that one. A healthy tan. And the number one, Microsoft works. (laughs) Not always. All right, so 
Is that what's going on here? Is this a contradiction in terms? No, it's meant to grab our attention. To say, you know, in the old pattern, in the old way, you brought a sacrifice, you brought an animal, and you killed it in your place, or you offered it up as thanks to God. He says, now, I want you to bring yourself. Uh, it's, it's not human sacrifice because you'd be a living sacrifice. It's not about living sacrificially. It's about being a living sacrifice in all of life. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not really part of our world. I mean, there's parts in this world where people are still regularly sacrificing else. It's not something we're probably going to see this week. Hope not. Well, so what does it mean then for us to offer our bodies, all that we are, is a living sacrifice to God. When we look down in verse 1, I think we get the clue right here as you keep following in the text. He says that we're to be holy. And that holy life is going to be pleasing to God. Now, that's another word. Holy? What does that mean? I'm not holy. Well, if you know Christ, actually you are. Because holy means you've been set apart, you've been devoted to, to God his purposes, his honor. It's something that God has done and is doing in the life of a believer so that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says you were sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 talks about being sanctified. It's a process where he set us apart for God and he's continually setting us apart where more and more we grow to become more like Jesus. And if you're like me, you say, man, I got a long way to go. Sometimes you go through a week like this week and go, I think I went back a lot of steps. It's something that God is committed to, our sanctification. It's a work that he's begun and is doing, and it's a work that we partner with him. So we don't just say, well, you know, I'm kind of slow here because God, I think, forgot about me. No, it's something that we're doing as well. So in in Philippians chapter 2, kind of on the same note, Paul says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you to will and act according to his good purposes. All right. So, a life of worship, clear vision of God, and then the logical response to what we see in God. So what are the implications? Let me give you four. First, a life of worship then is all-inclusive. When it talks about offering our bodies, it means all that we are. I don't know if you divide the human body into physical and spiritual two parts or body, mind, and soul three parts, but however you do it, all of it is God's. A life of worship is not just all-inclusive, but it's ongoing. It's never the kind of deal where we go, um, the call in Scripture is to worship God like once in a while or like once a week. That would be great. Once a week, thanks for coming. Thanks for worshiping me. It's not an appointment on our, our day timer. It's not something where we go, I, I worship today because, you know, I had, I had my quiet time this morning. It's, it's ongoing. Not only throughout this life, but we see in Scripture that it's for all of life throughout eternity. So it's 24-7. Wherever you are, you can Offer your life back to God in worship. So where are we going to be this week? Well, we're going to be in our dorm room. We're going to be in our homes or in apartments. We're going to be in the classrooms. We're going to be in the locker rooms. We're going to be on the fields competing. 
We're going to be in our cars driving. We're going to be logging on on the computer. We're going to be serving here at church. We're going to be meeting with neighbors, having a meal together. Wherever we are, 24-7, we can offer it up to him. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Did you hear what he said? Whatever you do, even eating and drinking. So this is the third implication then. If whatever we can do can be done to the glory of God, then a life of worship completely destroys and obliterates this divide, this false divide that we have between sacred and secular, where we say, hey, here's some parts of my life. Like, you know, I I go to the InterVarsity Bible study. That's like a spiritual thing. Then I live in this dorm on campus, and whoa, that's not spiritual at all. All right, then I go to work, you know, and oh, man, that's not a very spiritual place either. I don't think anybody knows Jesus there. And then I've got my family, and, you know, sometimes we pray together, and that's spiritual. That's cool. I go to this small group, and that's spiritual. You see how we start doing it? We start building these categories. We say, these things are spiritual, and these things are not. Classic book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, makes a very, very important point when he says, it's not about what we do that makes something sacred. It's why we do what we do. And so you look at me and say, well, he's, he's a pastor, so he's going to be studying the Word of God. He's going to be counseling people. You know, that's all spiritual stuff. You know, I'm a plumber. I'm going to be working away on the terminal all week, or I'm going to be whatever. And you see, it's, it's not what we do. It's why we do what we do that makes it worship. And so the implication here is there is no divide and, and, and then the result of that is it means that all of life is significant. If we can worship God in all of life, then there is nothing in our life where we say like the student in school, and now we never did this, us adults. I know it's just kind of a, a modern thing that people are wrestling with where you're studying something. Uh, students, you, you maybe know what I'm talking about. You're studying something, you go, this is a complete waste of time. I mean, why in the world am I studying this? I am never going to use this ever again in my life. And I've probably forgotten most of what I learned just last week because it's so complicated. This is a waste. We can never say that, that there's an area of our life that's just like, it's just, this is a waste. No. Because we can worship God in all of life. That means there is significance in all of life as we live it before him, offering ourselves to him. So verse two then brings it home. And I think it gives us two applications, something we should not do and something we should do. And in a sense, the application here, bringing it home in verse 2, helps us better understand what does it mean to live a holy life in a very messed up world where not only this world is twisted, even our own hearts get twisted. And the first thing we learn here in verse 2 is we're not to be squeezed in the world's mold. Now I want you to look at the slide here J.B. Phillips has written a great, great paraphrase of the New Testament. And this is his version of verses 1 and 2. Hey, let's read this one out together. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Let's read that one again. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. 
But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. So he says, don't be conformed. Don't let the world squeeze you in its mold. So I snuck downstairs at the beginning of the service because I like to see what's going on with the kids. So in one of the kids' room, you know what they're playing with? Play-Doh. You know what they had? They had molds. So I saw this little mold, and it's got a hinge, and it was a horse, and, you know, the kids are stuffing in the, the, the Play-Doh there, and then they're squeezing it into that. He says, don't do that. Don't copy the world like a chameleon does his environment where all of a sudden the values of this world become your values you think and you talk and you behave like the world we're to be in the world but not of the world we don't separate ourselves from the world we go in to be light and hopefully bring the light of christ that changes people and opens their eyes but the danger here is that we would be squeezed into the pattern of this world so that we now think like the world thinks. And you know how the world thinks fundamentally? That there is no God. And my life has nothing to do with him, and he has nothing to do with my life. And a lot of you, that's exactly the kind of workplace you go to. A lot of you, that's your roommate situation, or it might be even who you're married to. And what you don't want to do is now let their perception of life squeeze you into thinking, well, that's how it is. God's not here. Oh, yeah, yes. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's what we ought not to do. Now, we say, yeah, man, I think there's a lot of that going on in my life. I got to stop that. I got to stop the squeezing forces of this world in my life. How am I going to do that? And the, the thing here is, the beauty here is, it's found in the next point of application. Be transformed. Let, let your minds be renewed in the word of God so that you're completely changed, as J.B. Phillips puts it, from within, from the inside of my heart that now starts to manifest in the very outworkings of my life. And so we don't have to go through this life going, I got to stop being squeezed, I got to stop being squeezed. No, you go through this week saying, I need to renew my mind in the word of God and in that truth and seeing God for who he is. And as my mind is renewed, I'm changed. And as I'm changed, I no longer think the same thoughts that the world thinks and have the same values that they have and behave in the same way. I'm offering myself as a holy and pleasing sacrifice to God. So what are the results? Well, the results come here at the end of the verse, but let me point out two things before we get to this whole matter of doing God's will. There's three results of this renewed mind or of a life of worship. The first is that a true life of worship now means that there's no worship in us that is vain. See, Jesus would say to us, have you worshiped this morning, friend? Have you worshiped this morning? And and if we think we have because we sung some songs or just repeated some scripture or paid attention to a drama or to a message, then we... May have missed something here because Jesus says this about vain worship. These people honor me. Now he's talking about religious people. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And so he labels them hypocrites. You say all the right things here. It means that we could have sung all the songs. 
But if it's not here from the heart, he says it's in vain. Not only that, there's no longer room for dead orthodoxy. We're worshiping now in spirit and truth. Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, this prostitute, as she's moving to become a worshiper of Christ, says this, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The third result is not just that there's no longer vain worship, but that we're worshiping in spirit and truth. That means from our own hearts, the spirit is our spirit in the truth of God's word. So there's a complete integrity. There's a wholeness to it. It's not just what we're saying and doing, but it's flowing from the heart. And it's not just flowing from the heart, but it's flowing through the heart after that which is true. And he says this, the third result is that a life of worship that ends up being a life of obedience. Because what do we end up doing? Then you will test and approve God's will. What do we know about his will as we offer ourselves as living sacrifice that it's good, that it is pleasing, not just to God, but it's pleasing to us. That is the path for delight and joy. And it is perfect. And so, may we see God that we might worship him and that in worshiping worshiping him, others might say, hey, I want to taste too. Have you ever had menu regret? Come on, be honest. Menu regret? You're at the restaurant, you order something, and your friend or your spouse or whomever ordered something else. And then you just know it, just by looking at it right away, you're going, oh, menu regret, I, I got the wrong thing. And then to make it worse, they start doing the what about Bob thing. Remember when Bob's eating the corn? Mmm, mmm, mmm. And they start doing that. And, you know, you're like a dog at the table, and you're just starting to salivate for what they're eating, going, man. And, and sometimes they, they catch, you know, our, our clues here, and they say, hey, do you want to try some? And you're going, yeah, yeah. That, that people would see in us a treasuring and a savoring of Christ because we see him by the grace of God. He's opened our eyes and they'd say, hey, hey, can I have a taste? Little Duncan Mitchell was picked up by his mom at the schoolyard and she was amazed when she heard him say in all honesty, looking up to her, are you my mommy? She didn't know it at the time, and he was later diagnosed with something called a rare disease called face blindness. The official word is prosopagnosia. It comes from the Greek word prosopon, face, agnosia, don't know the face. It's a disease where you actually can see, but you cannot recognize someone's face. No cure. What an awful disease, to not be able to see the ones who love you most. My friends, there's all varying degrees of spiritual face blindness right here in this room and all around us in this great city and all the way around the world. And my hope is that just as there's no cure for it physically, 
that the cure spiritually would be is people like you come here and we keep looking to Christ and keep treasuring Christ and holding him up that we at Door Creek would never lose sight of our great Savior. And then as we go out here being saturated and encouraged together with new visions of who he is and what he's done for us and hearing the stories of grace in each other's lives, that people would start to get it. And then this, we'd further the mission of God of changing lives. It'll change the world for his glory. Let's pray. And so, Lord, that's our desire. Our desire is that you'd open the eyes of our hearts and we just confess that we just get satisfied with too little in life. We chase after all these things and, and we're so grateful, Lord, that these things don't, but we're so slow to learn that. And we would just pray that you'd open our eyes to see that your son alone is our greatest treasure and that we would truly treasure him, grow to love him more, and that reflexively and instinctively more and more the reflex would be offering our lives back to you, offering our lives to others in service. And so, Lord, bring this kind of vision to us and may we be a people individually and together that hungers and thirsts for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.